Welcome to Human Matters. I'm Deborah Stone, here with a podcast exploring the new insights that research brings into how we understand what it is to be human. We're coming to you from the studios of the Australian Catholic University, a hub to study society and culture. One of the key ways we understand our present is by trying to understand the past. Historians excavate those who have gone before and bring us a better understanding of where we are and how we got here. Traditionally, history was about the great sweeps of power seen in the actions of sovereigns or generals. But increasingly, there is an appreciation among historians that the foot soldiers of history have a great deal to teach us too. Our guest today works on the social history of marginalised groups, including Indigenous and LGBTI Australians. Noah Reisman is Associate Professor of History at the Australian Catholic University. He's the lead author of Serving in Silence, a history of Australian LGBTI servicemen and women. And he's also written on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander military service and on the nature of oral history. Welcome to the program, Noah. Thanks, Deborah. Happy to be here. The first thing our listeners are going to notice from your accent is that you were raised in America. Why were you drawn to Australian history? I get asked that all the time. It actually happened on a whim. So I did my undergraduate study at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. And Georgetown actually has a program in Australia and New Zealand studies. So when I was going into my second year at university and I was going through all the list of the history units, what I want to take, there was this Australian history unit. And I thought, oh, that could be interesting. Why not? And um, it was great. I absolutely loved it. Fantastic lecturer, Patty O'Brien, and took another history unit there. And then I did a study abroad exchange program here at Melbourne Uni, continued to, to love it. And I finished my degree in the US, worked for a few months, and then came back out here, did my PhD in Australian history. Why did you love it? Oh, look, I, I, I cannot give a clear answer to that. Maybe it was just taught really well. I think how history is taught can have a lot of influence on where our passions go. I was at that time and still am especially interested in the histories of colonialism and indigenous peoples and especially the comparisons between indigenous experiences here in Australia and of Native Americans in the United States. And that was sort of an angle that really sucked me in. And also, I just love Australia. Great place to live. Dual citizen now. They can't send me back. <laughs> <laughs> and why would you want to go? Exactly. <laughs> Much of your work is focused on the defence forces. I must admit that when I think of a military historian, I tend to envisage some retired colonel with, you know, fascination with battle strategy. They do exist. <laughs> you they don't do. fit that stereotype at all, though, Noah. You're a social historian and you work on the experiences of marginalised groups. What is it about the defence forces that makes them a good area for exploring minority experiences? There's a lot of research in the field of military sociology that is constantly talking about the relationships between defence forces and a country's society, how they see themselves, how they enact. And so in many ways, a defence force is different, but in other ways, it is a lens to look at wider trends in Australian society. So for instance, when I look at indigenous people in the defense force, I'm not just writing about what happened to them in the defense force, that is part of it. But I'm also talking about what was it like for these people before they joined the defense force? What was it like for them 
afterwards. How does what happened to them in the Defence Force link with what's going on for Indigenous people in civilian Australia? How do the laws intersect? How does it influence gender? How does it influence race, their treatment? And you can do that with almost any demographic group because a Defence Force in a place like Australia, United States, most Western societies, has had such an interesting relationship with civilian society that it is a microcosm for that country in many ways. In other ways, it's different, and we account for that as well. Right. So most of the time, the defence forces are self-selecting, except when we've got conscription. Except when you've got conscription. And when you've got conscription, it's even more of a microcosm in some ways because it's bringing in, well, all male, of course, so that's a different layer of it on gender. But conscription, especially in Australia, less so in the United States, where there were all sorts of exemptions that wealthy people managed to get out. But in Australia, when there's conscription, it's even more a cross-section of society in many ways. So you've gathered a lot of stories in this process, stories particularly from LGBTI and Indigenous servicemen and mm. women, and from people who are not servicemen and women in your other projects. That's right. What kinds of reactions do you get when you ask people to share these stories? Oh, you get all sorts of reactions. One common one is, oh, well, I'm happy to share my story if you want, but I don't think it's that interesting. That's one. And then you do this interview and you think, that was incredibly interesting. What are you talking about? Some people have interviewed who, especially those who had a rough time in the defense force, um, thinking particularly some of the LGBTI people, they very much want to talk about it, but they also talk about it being revisiting a difficult chapter in their lives. And for some of them, it's a very difficult process. For others, it's an empowering process. I can think of at least one example, which is in the book that we've just had published, where he said this was the first time he'd ever spoken about his time in the Defense Force, which was quite traumatic. But this was in many ways a healing experience for him. For other people who are very proud of their service, they, they tell these stories all the time and they just love having another opportunity to tell it. So there's varying reactions. But one thing I do say is even the person who thinks that their experience was the most boring of them all, they're always wrong because there's always something interesting that comes out in these interviews about these people's lives. So tell us some of the interesting stories. Oh, God, I could go on for hours about this. The one that has always stuck with me the longest, it was one of the first interviews I ever did, and it's always been one of the, the most moving, most meaningful for me, was a gentleman I interviewed back in 2010 named David Cook. So Dave Cook is an Aboriginal man. He was born in 1945, if memory serves, and he was from New South Wales, and about the age of eight or nine, he was taken away from his family. He was a member of the Stolen Generations. And in his story, he talked about this awful upbringing. He was at Kinchilla Boys' Home, which for anyone who studies Stolen Generations history would know was a notorious place of physical and psychological abuse of boys, an awful place of institutionalization. He was then fostered out. But the foster family wasn't I, – actually, I shouldn't even use the word family. The foster carers, if you will, were not very supportive. And he had this, this really troubled upbringing and then he joins the army. And it was the first place in his life that he really found a home for himself. It was the first place in his life that he felt welcomed. But what's also interesting is having this institutional upbringing – very much prepared him for it because the army itself is so rigid. It is so disciplined, hierarchy, um, rules, regulations. He fit in really, really well. He wound up doing two tours in Vietnam. Uh, in Vietnam, the first tour, he accidentally injured himself by shooting himself in the foot. I know. It's, but the weird, it's a very strange story. One shouldn't laugh, but really. You shouldn't, but he does. But what the extra layer of that is that happened just a few days before the Battle of Long Tan. 
and he missed the Battle of Longtan because of that, which in some ways he's had a bit of guilt about, you know, the sort of survivor guilt type thing. But on the other hand, I mean, you know, he was safe because of that. In his second tour in Vietnam a few years later, he got bit by a scorpion. And by virtue of that, he was in the hospital and missed the Tet Offensive. So he did say in his interview, maybe someone's looking out for me. But the other – see, I, t- I could talk about Dave for hours. I'll try and keep it short. Is When he left the army, his life fell to pieces. And his life fell to pieces because a lot of it had to do with that stolen generation's upbringing. And he just was not equipped for returning to civilian society. He had PTSD both from his upbringing and from his experiences in Vietnam. He did not have a good life after that. He did get married. He had children. But he, by his own admission, was a terrible father. He did admit in his interview to me to having been a perpetrator of family violence. He spent a lot of the 1980s in and out of prison. Eventually, he did get his life back on track when he reconnected with his siblings. And where there's a semi-happy ending to this is when possible now, he tries to travel to Cambodia with a charity that works on landmine removal. But he's had a, why his story has always stuck with me is A, so much has happened. But I've written about his story a few times and how very much his life shows the intersections between military service and members of the stolen generations. And on the one hand, he fit in very well in the Defense Force. And there are actually a lot of stolen generations people who served in the Defense Force. And a lot of the forgotten Australians, a lot of Australians who grew up in in out-of-home care fit in well to the Defense Force. But as the rest of his life story shows, even that wasn't enough to sort of save him from the the awful trajectory that being stolen from his family put him on. Do you want me to go through some other stories or have I talked too long about Dave? No, um, it's fascinating. (laughs) I mean, what strikes me about that story is that I had assumed that by and large these stories would be stories of negative experiences in the Defence Forces. But in his case, it sounds like the Defence Forces were really the best part of his life. Well, it's interesting. I'll give So one of the other stories I'll give here is another Aboriginal person. Well, as a broad overview, for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people whom I've interviewed, the vast majority had very positive experiences in the Defence Force. One theme that's come across in the research is, for the most part, with exceptions, and I'll come to the exceptions in a moment, the Defence Force has often been quite a racism-free environment. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that you've got to make sure that everyone's got your back. You go through this very common experience of, of training. You learn from the moment of basic training about supporting each other in a team environment. If you're in combat, it's even more important. So for people like Dave who were in active combat in Vietnam, there's no room for racism there. One of the sayings that um, one of the veterans said once was, we all bleed the same color, red. There is an expression um, in some of the remote northern aboriginal communities where there's a lot of people involved in reserve units um, that they say we're all the same skin color, that's green. Now look, there was a period in the 1980s into the 1990s, some of the people I interviewed, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander who served then, did talk about there being racism. And they did talk about taunts, bullying. And the other thing they talked about was when they tried to deal with it or tried to report it, it did not get dealt with well. The ADF did not deal with it. To the ADF's credit, in the mid-90s, they finally adopted racial vilification rules, and it's gotten a lot better since then. Um, But yeah, most of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people I've interviewed, especially if they served in the 1950s or 60s, they they speak incredibly highly of their time in the ADF. The other brief example I was going to give was Sue Gordon. She was also stolen generations. 
was raised in Sister Kate's home in Western Australia. She did not suffer abuse as a child, which is a, a very good thing. She served at Sister Kate's during a br- very brief period where the management of it gave some opportunities to some people of high achievement, and she was one of them. But still, she, you know, she was restricted in what she could do in Western Australia. And she wound up joining the Women's Royal Australian Army Corps in, I want to say, 1961. And she served for three years. And this was her big break, if you will. It was her opportunity to learn more skills, to be in an environment free of racism. And when she left the army, she was able to get involved in other professional jobs. And by the 1970s, she was involved in Indigenous affairs in Western Australia. In the 1980s, she became the first Aboriginal person to head a department, a government department in Western Australia. She became the first Aboriginal magistrate of the New Children's Court when that was set up in Western Australia. She's been involved in all sorts of state and national inquiries. And when the controversial intervention was brought in, the Northern Territory intervention in 2007, she was the first person headed to oversee it. Now, it was controversial. There's a lot of politics there that we don't really need to go into, but she was, her motivation was very much determined to stamp out child abuse and I have a lot of respect for Sue Gordon, and she was a fantastic person to interview, so generous, and another great example of a person who the army was an opportunity for her where in civilian society as an Aboriginal person in the 1960s, there just wasn't. Wow. So in these contexts, the defence forces have been a, a real force for good for some people. For most Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, I think notwithstanding some of the traumas that they might experience in combat... Um, but in the post-Second World War era, absolutely, well, even in the First and Second World War, I should say, it was also an opportunity. Unfortunately for the people from the First and Second World War, and even as late as Vietnam and arguably even recently, sometimes the return to civilian society, you were back in racism again. And that's a, another layer to the stories that's important to explore. But while in the forces, it's almost been unanimous that they were treated as equals. And what about the experience of LGBTI service people? Uh, We're going the other direction. (laughs) Depends when they served. The Australian Defence Force, until November of 1992, had a ban on lesbian, gay, and bisexual people serving. If you were lesbian, gay, or bisexual, LGB, and you were found out, you were kicked out of the Defence Force. Transgender people were not allowed to serve until September of 2010. There are always ways around these, or often it being you know, keeping your identity secret, your sexuality secret. But th- that's the general story until those milestones is one of persecution, one of hiding, and quite challenging. Since then, since 1992, I always say that the Defense Force it went through a very slow but gradual change from when the LGB ban was lifted until about 2008, give or take. There's no set date on this. It was an era of tolerance at best. They wouldn't kick you out for being LGB. That didn't mean that you were necessarily welcomed. A lot of people still stayed in the closet, especially men. Um, for, For lesbian women, it was a little bit easier during that era because it was always assumed that there were lesbians in the defense force. Now they could be open about it. Same-sex partners were still denied benefits until the very end of 2005. Um, For those who did come out, you do hear stories of gossip, bullying, 
Um, you also hear stories of acceptance. It was really variable during that period. But institutionally, the defense force was not exactly going out of its way to be inclusive. That's why I say it was tolerance at best. But from about 2008, give or take, you start to see this change where the defense force starts to go out of its way to wanting to be inclusive. The transgender ban being lifted in 2010 is, is quite important in that. Mind you, that was a, a a challenge from two members who needed to transition that led to the ban being lifted. Then you do get defense starting to support its members marching at Mardi Gras, allowing them to march in uniform since 2013. You begin to see um, more active um, active approaches to trying to be inclusive. Um, there's a guide, a RAF guide to transitioning that is produced by the Air Force in 2013, which is meant to give support and information about transitioning in the Defense Force. There is um, more efforts to engage with the defense LGBTI community. Defense starts sending recruiters out to Mardi Gras, Melbourne's Midsummer Carnival, some of the other LGBTI pride festivals. They've supported Wear It Purple Day. Um there have been a few other sort of small, low-key initiatives, but it it has been quite important in saying to people, we don't just tolerate you. We want you to be a part of this, and we support you regardless of your sexuality and gender identity. Like with race, it's not to say they always get it right, especially with transgender people. I think it's been quite patchy. Some areas have been more welcoming and accepting than others. But to give defense credit, it has been on the right trajectory. That's kind of plateaued in the last year or so, but I would like to hope that they'll continue in the right trajectory. One of the things that's always puzzled me is for people who are gay or lesbian or, or whatever their sexuality is, but it's not something that they knew was going to be accepted in the period where there was not acceptance, why did they join the Defence Forces? Mm. Why choose that lifestyle for the, those who did choose? Yeah, no, it is an excellent, excellent question and it varies so many reasons. Um, one thing you just hinted there, there's obviously a period where national service, they don't choose. So well, that's an easy one. For others, it's that very same thing if they wanted to serve their country. Um, for many, especially some of the men and the women who served in, say, the 60s or 70s when sexuality was still taboo, a lot of them didn't necessarily realize that they were gay, bisexual, or lesbian at the time that they enlisted. They might have realized it while they served um, and either came out quietly or didn't come out till after they served or got caught. There are others who it was an economic decision. It was an opportunity and so similar to many others. It's a job. It's a way to get skills and they were willing to put their sexuality aside for that opportunity but then would find it's, it's not that easy to put your sexuality aside but might have thought at the time that they enlisted that they could. And for others, the, it, I use the word escape. Um, in the book that we just had come out, there's one particular story about a gentleman named Mark. He wanted to be anonymous, so we didn't use his surname. But he had a horrific, abusive childhood and joining the Defense Force was an escape for him. And so the fact that you weren't allowed to be gay wasn't necessarily even a consideration at the time and, and again, thought he could repress it, but found it harder than that than, than one would think to do that. In the era of open service, it's less of an issue, the the question of whether or not you could serve. For transgender people, there's a very interesting different reason that a lot of them serve. There's been research done that came out of the United States as early as 1988, so for quite some time, that's found that disproportionately transgender people are more likely to enlist in defenses than defense forces than cisgender people. And what this research found was if we're looking at male to female 
transgender people, so people who transition from male to female, often pre-transition, while they're struggling with their gender identity, they might join a defense force as a way to try and prove their masculinity to themselves. It's a very hyper-masculine environment. Um, a lot of them will get involved in very dangerous areas, combat, infantry. It's even been said in some of my interviews, um, you know, they thought they'd rather die in combat with honor than continue living as they were. And if they don't die in combat, then there's the struggle and the ones I've interviewed are the survivors who chose to transition. For female to male transgender people, there's even this, this reverse of being in the defense force is a place where you can exhibit masculine behaviors as a woman and it's a bit more tolerated, accepted. So for transgender people, it's actually been interesting that the very masculine nature of the defense force, the gender structures have kind of made it appealing to people pre-transition and for other people, other reasons after they've transitioned as well. But then presumably the reverse would be true for male to female the transitions? Uh, reverse in what sense? That, that if it's a hyper-masculine environment, then somebody who's transitioning to become female might feel less comfortable there? It's interesting you say that because um, that's a good question. The the trans women I've interviewed who all, all – one served years ago and didn't transition until years after she left the Defense Force. One – enlisted after she transitioned, but most transitioned while they were in the defense force and they stayed in it um, because they did like the job. They liked what they were doing. They liked the skills. They enjoy serving their country. I would say it. what has come across in the interviews after they transitioned to women, some of them, it was transphobia, but at least one woman said to me, she's never had a problem with transphobia, but as a woman, the sexism she has to put up with is just insane. She says, I feel more discriminated against as a woman than as a transgender person. Yes, I've heard that. In fact, there's a TED talk around at the moment of a woman uh, talking about that very issue. I can't remember her name, but a woman who transitioned saying, talking about the sexism she has experienced. Yeah. And for yes. the trans men, um, most, I've only interviewed a small number of trans men, but most, uh, one of them I actually interviewed yesterday, um, he has faced some serious bullying as a trans man. But the others have said, you know, they've acquired male privilege. They're treated better now. Um, you know, he said, you don't get interrupted as much. You, he, he said, it's amazing how when you have a conversation that people actually look at you now, um, just the way people talk to you and around you. So they've acquired male privilege and boy, are they conscious of it. So we're getting a real experience of change that you see in your work with it. If you're telling stories from 20 years ago compared to telling stories from very recent history. The Defence Forces have gone through a really noticeable change in terms of the way they mm. treat particularly LGBTI people. Absolutely, yes. Do you think that telling the history and having the history out there has been part of getting that change to happen? I think it's part of continuing the change. And one thing that's very important, which a few of the ex-service people have said, a few of them, they have very, a few of them have had very bittersweet sentiments about the present where they they've said it really really articulately the way they've articulated it the when they see how accepting it is now they're sort of they're very happy but they're also very sad for what they had to go through and the opportunity for those that were kicked out in particular that was taken away from them but there are others who served in the past who dare I put it say put it this way have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder and really want the stories told because they think the people who serve today take it for granted and don't realize how hard it was in the past. I think 
they're right to an extent, although I think that they might not realize that there is an awareness more than they realize of what the people have gone through in the past. I think telling the stories and sharing the history can only reinforce further change and the importance of how far they've come and and encourage change. I'm not going to inflate what I've been doing to to make it sound like, oh, yes, by doing this history, we have made this change happen. I mean, no, I'm, I, I wish, but I'm not that influential. But it certainly, I think, helps to affirm what change has been going on. And I mean, I've been in touch with some of the very top brass of the Defense Force um, for the project, and they've been very encouraging of the project for the same reason. They think we, this history should be told. We're proud of the organization we are now. And some have even been on the record saying, we know we have a bad past in this area, and, and you know, it's not a good past, but we shouldn't hide from it. We need to confront it and be honest about it. It's famously said that without knowing history, we're condemned to repeat it. But how protective is knowledge of history? You know, it used to be said that if people understood the Holocaust, it would prevent future genocides. Well, the Cambodian killing fields and Rwanda certainly showed that wasn't true. Is there a step we're missing in integrating an understanding of history with contemporary social awareness? Mm. Can we teach history in some way that would better connect it with the present. The step we're missing is politicians actually listening. It's such a tough question you ask because I agree and I disagree and I agree and I disagree. So many mistakes of the past get repeated. They really do. That said, let me tell you, the historians and others with a historical awareness are constantly out there shouting about it if the bloody politicians would just listen. But it is more complicated than that because in many ways we do actually learn the lessons of the past I think if you look at history from below, a lot of the lessons of activism from the past, activists of today have learned from techniques, methods from the past. When we look at um, – there has been change and I think when you look at say some of the LGBT rights movement of now has learned from the LGBT rights movement of the past, which learned from the civil rights movement of the 60s, which learned from earlier movements in the early 1900s. But then, yeah, you're right. There are other mistakes that do get repeated. I look at the world today and I just think, my God, it looks like the 1930s again. That said, myself and others are shouting that. We are shouting that. When the global financial crisis hit, they did learn the lessons of the Great Depression and the recession wasn't as bad as it might have been. So, yeah, your, your question in many ways sends me around in circles because I both agree with it and actually – History is debatable. And one of the things I love about the discipline is that we are constantly debating. I remember when the Iraq war happened, you had a whole lot of historians shouting, this is a repeat of Vietnam, saying that in a bad way, do not do Iraq, this is a repeat of Vietnam. You also had historians and politicians like George W. Bush saying, this is a re we need to learn the lessons of Vietnam in the context of we can't abandon these people, a very different lesson of Vietnam. So his, people do learn from the past and yet sometimes we're not learning the right things. I don't know. don't know if that's an answer for your question. It's just we could probably run a whole semester on it, uh, on, on learning from the past and do we or don't we. Well, it's an important question, but also a question that I think is going to continue to be debated probably forever. Indeed. Associate Professor Noah Reisman, thank you for being part of Human Matters today. Thanks, too, to producers James Mitchell and Trey Karuna-Rathna. We're coming to you here from Australian Catholic University. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to review and share it. I'm Deborah Stone, and you've been listening to Human Matters.